this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Dia and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we're back with another anniversary 12-month review from one of our patron uh, subscribers. Patron, uh, I don't know, you call them a, a subscriber they're just, they're, or a... Uh, they're just called patrons. They're just called patrons? That's the it. Patreon patron? Patreon. Yeah, what's the... Uh, a uh, we need to, supporter, we need to... a backer, a... Uh, just a patron. Just a patron. Okay, I can I can live with that. Okay, I can be called that. <laughs> I mean, we could come up with a more clever name, something more you know, yeah, me out ish. But right, diggers, a digger, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. outers. Yeah, that could go wrong. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> the digger outer. Wolverines. <laughs> uh, I like that actually. Moles. <laughs> <laughs> Trolls. Uh, <laughs> oh no, we don't want to be trolls. We no. went down the we went down the wrong path here. Yeah, that happened quickly. The the voice you were hearing is our guest for this episode, Matthew Barnes from Cortland, New York. We were just discussing the region of Middle New York, Western New York. <laughs> not well, you know, every everything into the eastern part of New York in terms of like New York City and Albany is well known, but people forget there's an entire state. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, people assume you're from the city when you say you're from New York. Right. Well, I remember driving, uh, we drove from New York City to Buffalo. It was a lot of nothing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very rural state. Uh, people don't really realize that, I think. Yeah, it's, it can get mountainous and there are a lot of the trees and, you know, lakes and stuff. A lot of cows. In, in the shape of fingers. Right. Uh, so tell everyone for this episode, for your 12-month anniversary pick, what you have selected for us to check out. I have selected Empty by Goblins Underwater. Nice. Yes. How did you come upon this record? I was an angsty 15-year-old or whatever at the time, and, uh, you know, it was was really up my alley as far as, it was like Alice in Chains meets Nine Inch Nails, so it was like just geared for me and what what I was into, basically. Um, I think I saw the No More Love video on MTV. And instantly I thought it was great. And it's one of those records that just continues. Like every time I, I can't get sick of it. Like I, I, every time I hear it, I just, I seem to like it more and more and point out more and more things. And the production is awesome. So yeah, man, it just st- st- stuck in my head pretty easily. Excellent. Jay, were you familiar with Gallows mm-hmm. Underwater? Oh yeah. Yeah. I have uh, whoa, what record do I have? Life in the so-called, something space age space age space age yeah i i have that on cd um it was probably a record club pickup okay Uh, but but i was kind of into like this kind of uh sound for a bit for for a a blink in the 90s so yeah i didn't have uh this record um I, i was familiar with a couple of songs but uh didn't hadn't really ever listened to the record gotcha i own uh all the records well, not some of the. I don't think I have the 2004 record, but I have Empty. I have the original EP that came out before this. I have the 
record that you mentioned, Jay, and then I have another EP that came out in the 90s. I think it was for uh, Rearrange. It came out in 98. But I don't yeah. have Up Off the Floor, which came out in 2004. And I, I think I got into them fairly early. So I mentioned before the show that I had a little bit of a story with regards to God Lives Underwater and our college experience. There was, for a very brief period of time, Jay, a third record store in downtown Bowling Green. Now, the, the famous one is Finders. It's been there forever. And then there was, while we were there, there was Mad Hatter Music, which was in a terrible little, um, like, I don't know what you call it, shack of a building. For a, a, like a short period of time, this record store opened up. It was like a record store slash music venue. Slash, it was kind of weird is that they sold music and they also had like gear and they had, and it was also like a performance space. God God Lives Underwater was booked to play there. And so what happened was two things happened within like a week of each other. Um, There was a theft. Do you remember this? At one of the archive rooms where a bunch of stuff was stolen in terms of CDs and vinyl from one of the radio stations in Bowling Green. I don't know if you remember that. Vaguely. So a lot of that stuff magically ended up at this record store. (laughs) And then the same week, God Lives Underwater is like, I don't think they had a bus. I think they had like a nice van, like an Econa line, like rolls up and sees the venue. And we're like, what the hell is it? Like they thought they were playing, you know, like a four or 500 person, like, you know, decent sized venue. I mean, they're on. A&M rec- not A&M, they're on American recordings for this. They've got yeah. some buzz, blah blah blah. And they're playing there's this, basically it's like a tiny little shop with like a a, t- a little bit of a performance area. Mm-hmm. And they like just laughed. Oh no. <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> that place shut down very quickly afterwards. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, uh, that sucks. And it was never really confirmed whether someone stole all that music and like tried to sell it off all there or if the person who was actually running the store was the one who stole it all uh maybe somebody who went to bowling green at that time and you know has more information can share it with us but uh yeah i think the place was around less than a month and then it like (laughs) disappeared i'm surprised that they didn't play though i mean it's not like they were like huge rock stars you know it would seem they would want to take advantage of every opportunity I think because the, the, just the gear wouldn't fit inside. Oh, it just wouldn't fit in there. <laughs> okay, well, that, I can see that being a problem. I think they had, you know, like synthesizers and a, and a band, and, you know, they had, like, you know, stuff, and this place was not cut out for stuff. It was cut out for, like, a guy with an acoustic guitar, right. and that's about it. So anyway, that's the history of uh, my experience <laughs> with God Lives Underwater in, in college. So the band actually formed in a small town outside of Philadelphia, which I cannot pronounce it, so I'm not going to, uh, in 1993 by David Riley and Jeff Terzo. They were in bands before that and then um, put together the EP, which got the attention of Rick Rubin of American Recordings. So uh, the original EP came out on Onion, which was the imprint of American recordings. And then they got bumped up to the majors and their first album, 1985 is empty, which we were reviewing came out uh, on American. And then they moved to A and M 1500 records for the 
follow-up 1998's Life in the So-Called Space Age. Now, I guess Up in the Floor was actually recorded for 1500 A&M, but there was, as happens, a lot of turmoil at the record label, and they ended up delaying the release for six years. I don't know if it was six years, but for multiple years, and it didn't come out until 19, until 2004 on um, Locomotive Music. And then, sadly, David Riley passed away in 2005 from... He, fell, he died in his sleep from complications of a coma brought on by bleeding due to a tooth infection. Yeah, that, which is crazy, because he, he had all these drug problems. And I guess... Um, at that, at that time he was, I, I, I heard that he was like clean and, you know, he was getting his, his shit together. And then that happens. It's just like, God, you know, it was, it's really tragic, you know, and then he was just about to release an album and go on tour. And yeah. Um, 2007, there was a book released by Brian Payone called dreams or unfinished thoughts, which is a, uh, he was a friend of, uh, David Riley's and, uh, I guess it's about him, about David Riley. So uh, if you're interested in reading that, you can go to the website, Brian Payone, P-A-O-N-E.com to check that out. So let's get into this record, Empty by God Lives Underwater. So Jay, I'm going to start with you since you were familiar with the second record, but had not checked this one out yet. Tell me one thing you liked about Empty. I like the I like the production of this record. And it's funny because I, I didn't first couple of listens, I didn't realize they were on American. Um and I was struck by how dry it is. And yeah. if you know mm-hmm. anything about Rick Rubin, that's kind of his calling card is he hates reverb. <laughs> yeah. He tries yeah. to keep everything as pure, you know, and as simple as he can. So for this type of band to go with that approach, you would think, uh, which I remember this the album that I have being more, I think, reverby and lush sounding and higher, I don't, I don't want to say higher fidelity, but just um, shiny sounding. Uh, this would not be what you would think a band of this style to uh, choose from a production standpoint. So I enjoy that. I think it creates some pretty unique textures with the keyboards and the guitars together. And then the guitar, uh, the drums are a pretty good mix of like live drum sounds and then samples and or, um, you know, electronics mixed in with the live drums. So you get this like very intimate at times, dry, uh, compressed drum sound, but then, you know, they can drop in like these low sub bass sounds and just different Mm -hmm. textures. And it's just a, I think overall as a, a concept, it, it takes electronic music, but makes it very analog, I guess, or, or the electronic aspects of this band. It makes them very analog, which um, it just makes it sound different. Like it doesn't really sound like a Nine Inch Nails record, even though you could compare them at times to them. Um, the production is is just, it's it's more of a, uh, well, I mean, it's a Rick Rubin production. I guess that's right. the best way to describe it. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought up the production because that was the thing that I kept like trying to figure out what made this different. It It's a weird thing to say, but this is like a very intimate electronic record and not in the way that it, you would think like, oh, it's, you know, sparse and it has this feel of like you're right there with them mm-hmm. playing the instruments because there's no like reverb and you hear. And I think the with the kind of 
masterful job is that because there's not a ton of reverb or any reverb, um, you would expect then things to get sort of really brittle sounding, especially because they're using, you know, these distorted guitars that are very processed and, you know, with keyboard stabs and stuff like that. But they're able to tweak it enough so that you get the fuzz, you get the distortion, but it's got a little bit of fullness that just, you know, keeps it from going into like this bright, overly bright or brittle uh, side of things. And it's a really nice listen from that aspect. Yeah, I think a, con- a good comparison would be stabbing what the stabbing Westward record uh, was it Darkest Days or Darkest Hour or something yeah. that we reviewed. That is the, I think, what I was expecting from a production standpoint. So that can, well, two things. That album can get huge, like with the way they do layering. Like when they go big, it gets enormous. But it can also get brittle. Like the yeah. guitars get to this like fuzzy tone of like ear-piercing just noise right. where this doesn't ever do that. Matthew, give us some thoughts on, you know, what you like about this record, what works best for you. Well, I, I agree with the production aspect of it. It's almost like it's lo-fi digital, which is a weird way of, like, thinking about it. But it's like it was recorded in a like 16-bit. I don't know if it was or not, but it just sounds like it was recorded kind of in a, like a lower-quality converter or something. But it somehow works for the sound of the record. Like, it's, you know, like you said, it's not too bright. It's full, but it has kind of that grittiness to it. Um, yeah, um, I, I really like the, the drum sounds, uh, I like the way the guitars sound, they're, they're like processed, but they're, again, they're warm, like they're just, like, but really heavy, but they're clear. Um, I really do like the use of the drums and the, the live drums and the sample drums. The guitar work is great on it, the riffs are great, the, the melodies are really good. Um, it's, another thing that you would, one thing that would work is like his style of vocal, like it works over the the music like the heavy industrial kind of music but it's sort of mellow it's not like screamy like trent reznor or the guy from stepping mm-hmm. west um it's a it's a really cool contrast that you think would just not match but somehow it does um and it's just another thing that creates a really unique thing for this record and the, the melodies are strong the hooks are there you know it's just uh it's it's weird. It's dark yet it's danceable. It's oh, it's a lot of contrasts that work together, and I think that's what makes it work for me. You know, you mentioned about you know in the earlier part about Lane Staley, this being a combination of what was it, Lane Staley and uh, Nine Inch Nails, yeah. and I, that that was on my mind when I was listening to this. Like, you could if you produced this in a different way, and you kept his vocal, you could very easily turn this into a rock record. Because yeah. the melodies are there and the structure of the songs are there, all you would need to do is just, you know, tweak the performance of the instruments, and you've got basically, like you said, like you're in the like nine inch, not you move out of nine inch nails territory into like an Alice in Chains territory, 
Which I think is I, a sign I, of good songwriting, is that they're not relying on electronic tricks to drive the song. They're they're relying on good songwriting to drive the songs. Yeah, it only enhances it, really. I right. Mean, it just complements what's our, what already is going on. I think you get some of these you could even take to like uh even if you strip the vocal track um and and just use like uh, uh the basic drums and kind of built a new song around it some of them would even sound like lighter alt rock like jars of clay ish like all wrong, all wrong is a song that like if you set aside all the keyboards and the and the guitar riffs and just listen uh-huh. to it vocally it, it, it's not that heavy i mean it's it's pretty you know yeah. straightforward yeah you know basic alt rock i think it's the combination of all the different elements for some of these songs where it starts to go in a different place but at, at its core you know they're just they're just solid rock songs yeah although all wrong does have that one riff that opens it it reminds me of a, a slayer riff i think it's south of heaven has mm-hmm. that like descending oh yeah yeah <laughs> Oh yeah, you got to set the guitar riffs aside. That's a whole. Right, yeah. I'm just I saying, if you just listen you. to the, the way the singer is singing and the vocal melodies, yeah. no, the, I, I, yeah, yeah, those, totally those right. aren't Slayer at all. Right. <laughs> no, no, that definitely what makes it not, not Slayer. I, and I even heard, um, I heard a little Lane Staley. I heard Mike Patton sometimes too from uh, and Faith No More a little bit. Um, so that's like one of my favorite bands, Faith No More, because it would make sense that I'd latch onto it. Yeah, he gets oh. into that like nasally territory at times. Mm-hmm. that Mike Patton does. Uh, so that, yeah, I can hear that as well. I did not expect Slayer and Jars of Clay to be brought up on the exact same <laughs> song, same song, by the way. Talk about contrast. Holy crap. That's the first <laughs> and only time that will ever happen. I think we made podcast history. Just that now. is. <laughs> Here I am, my anger and me. Temper makes it hard to see This situation I'm in again Everything must come to an end now What I forgot to do at the top, Jay. I'm, I'm this for the band, or what? No, we had what? two new people join us at Patreon. Oh, you dumb! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's more important than anything. I know. That's how the bills get paid. Chris oh, Mills and Eric Smilled, smiled, S M I L D E. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I'm sorry, Eric, but thank you for joining us, Eric and Chris. At the uh, dollar level, we appreciate it. We appreciate the support, and uh, enjoy voting in the upcoming polls and and being a part of the uh, Patreon crew that gets to uh, pick records and win stuff, and you know, be a part of that community and and comment all these records that we're gonna check out. That said, was there anything Jay that didn't work for you on this record? Yeah, I, I the the formula the riff formula gets old for me pretty quickly um i think some of the songs actually um suffer a little bit um in that i think at their core there's some great melody sections and some solid ideas i just think by the time you get three quarters to the record sort of that 
the riff style on everything. <laughs> you're just like, oh, not another one of these. Yeah. Um, and then I noticed towards the second half of the record, they they do the same riff lines, like the same kind of runs, but they do more on keyboard instead of guitar. They're like, okay, we'll mix it up. We'll do that. Did it, did it, did it on the keyboard instead of the guitar. Um, I'm like, guys, it's the same riff. Come on. Um, I think, and some of them get saved a little bit for me because the the keyboard will at least uh, like play uh, off the guitar a little bit, and it creates a different texture and it distracts you from the another palm muted guitar riff. That that to me is where the record starts to be. It starts to drag me down on repeated listens. It just becomes a little uh, boilerpl- uh, boilerplate and predictable. And it, it's hard to sometimes get past that um, that aspect of the songs. You're just kind of like, oh, it's another one of these tunes. Where I think a song like No More Love, like there's a sophistication to the way that song's written, the way the, those verse melodies are very strong. Um, well, just even that song are great, too. Yeah, and just the way they set it up, like they set it up with the riff, but then they immediately cut to that melodic verse. You're like, okay, Mm -hmm. well, that's kind of cool. Yeah. a lot of the other material it's like here's the riff and then they build on top of the riff with the keyboard and then you got the riff through the whole verse you know like uh, okay so yeah i think that's my biggest criticism matthew any um things that stick out for you that maybe don't work as well as no it's perfect perfect record no, <laughs> <laughs> no there's definitely um revisiting it i think the thing that bothered me the most was that some of the lyrics don't really age well they're a little bit whiny and you know i think it worked for me as a teenager but you know growing up i mean it's just kind of like and they're not the greatest lyrics you know a little bit reeks of like high school poetry like bad high school poetry Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I read a couple i wrote a couple down like uh get that feeling touch the ceiling (laughs) (laughs) that's right well there's a lot of like rhyming you and do that kind of stuff. Yeah, you only make me unhappy, and I can't deal with this. That's another one. <laughs> mm. well, that's probably my least favorite song on there, the 23. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of boring. Yeah, they don't do the slow song well. I think the last one on there is interesting, though. Um, yeah. At least how it builds up at the end. I really like that. It's also it's, under three minutes, which helps. Right, yeah. I mean, it's not really an overly long record, at least not for me. I think if it were yeah. like a couple more tracks, it would be like exhausting. If it were like a stabbing westward record where it's 80 minutes long, you know, it's there's only so much like industrial guitar rock angst you can take before you start to lose your mind. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, the, at least the last one, they try something different with that, you know, acoustic guitar and then that build at the end. And 
23 just felt like, well, we have to do one at least one snow song, and it just sort of dragged on this. Yeah, and they they didn't. I don't. I don't feel like they really like found a strong melody for it, or it just was. It just it did. It really like ground the album to a halt at that moment. Yeah, it has a cool atmosphere to it, but as a song, it's just kind of. Eh, it know? almost would have been better if they just used it as like an instrumental piece for like a minute and a half to just yeah a, a breakup between yep. the first and the back half, first half and back half of the record. Yeah, I agree. Um, another one I wrote down was uh, the third song, Fool. It's definitely just, su- it's such a 90s guitar riff. The down, 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 down. I mean, it could be a Seven Mary Three song, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, I like how his vocal's different on that. That's the only, that's one thing I do like about that song. Is he, it's the one song where he's kind of more aggressive. Um, and it's his voice kind of breaks up, like it's not meant for it. But I think that's kind of what's cool about it. That's just me. Uh, uh, I struggled with that one a little bit. I get where you're coming from. I, I kept going back and forth. I was like, I like, there would be moments where I'm like, wow, I really like how intimate this is and like how he's pushing his voice. And then there's other parts where I'm like, he's a little off key. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, it's definitely not perfect. <laughs> like but, maybe uh, he could use a little reverb to help smooth that out. Cause that looks, that sounds real <laughs> naked. Rick Rubin does not own a reverb machine in his studio. I think he bans them. No, there are no reverb <laughs> tanks. No. So this record comes out in 95. I'm trying to remember. Is this the same year as Downward Sparrow? Was Downward Sparrow 94? It's 94. Okay. Yeah. So I understand, you know, this record did okay. It didn't chart, but the next one did, which I find interesting. I think, I feel like, uh, the latter half of the decade was actually kinder to this style of band. Cause that's when you get like stabbing westward and right. you know, some other orgy gravity kills. I feel like if this came out a little bit later, like two or two or three years later, it would have been more successful. Cause it does remind me of like uh, the chemical brothers and prodigy sometimes with the more keyboard synth heavy songs. Yeah. I'll say that I did enjoy this isn't a, I guess you'd say like an angsty sort of industrial record. It definitely has like a dancey electronica element. I don't know if electronica is the right word because that's that to me is a little more like European, I guess, with like the Chemical Brothers and right. and uh, Prodigy and and that kind of stuff. It's a little more glow stick the rave than than right. this. Yeah, yeah, I got that in a couple of spots. I well. think uh, "We Were Wrong" is a lot like that. Um, it it mm-hmm. definitely is like very dancey. It has the main riff is a keyboard doing that thing you were talking about the beat. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the beat on that is really cool.
yeah, that definitely reminded me of the stuff that would come out a little bit later in that field. And I think it would be, we'd be remiss if we didn't, you know, bring up Depeche Mode in, in all of this, because they're clearly like, in terms of structuring songs, I think they're probably following the Depeche Mode um, format rather yeah. than Nine Inch Nails. They were really into Depeche Mode, but I know David Riley was, anyway. Well, that makes sense. I mean, the next album is named after, uh, like, a quote from a Depeche Mode album. Right. So, that makes sense. Plus, he, uh, he's, I think David is the one who organized that uh, tribute record to Depeche Mode for the masses. Oh, that so would that make sense. Has that, uh, yeah, so he was a total nerd for those guys. Which, they're a great band. Can't go wrong with Depeche Mode my book anyway would, would that be a good uh in the 90s band to do tim what in, oh, oh, Depeche Mode yeah. in the 90s oh yeah definitely yeah. We're, we're gonna get there i got some i got them on on deck nice well that's nice because that circles us back around to many other bands that we've talked about on this show with that with that comp which we've actually covered back in i don't remember what year it was many years ago another thing i was reading was uh and you can hear it um, up off the floor if you listen to it it sounds like total shit um it's i guess someone messed up in the mastering process or something and it sounds like a low quality mp3 you know, when <laughs> that first mp3s first came out the entire like record is ruined and the only way you can get a copy of the unaffected version is the bootlegs that came out first oh gosh so it's just like ugh, that, that's gotta suck <laughs> like who was asleep that day and were they fired? Wow. That's terrible. But yeah, it's too bad because there's some good songs on it, but it's just, it sounds so horrible. Let's talk about our overall ratings on this record. Were the album better EP or decent single? Jay, where do you land? I am between a single and an EP. I just think there's a good. There's a good concept here. I think some of the material is much better than others. I think it gets pretty stale pretty quick for me. Um, I'll go with an EP. I think that to get to an album, they would need to... I think this album could probably be a little bit more experimental than it is. Like, I'd like to hear this sound, but hear a couple tracks on here where they just, you know, push it a little bit further and go um a little further so i'm in an ep yeah that's not rick rubin's mo i, I mean he's a song guy yeah. i know so i feel like the next record it was way more experimental like it got less guitar and angst driven and it was more of a kind of yeah. all over the place for better or for worse matthew your rating definitely worth the album um i realize it's flawed in some ways like I could live without like 23 and uh, what's the other one I wrote down? Tortoise. Tortoise is just like, kind of seems like kind of a filler song. Um, but I, I still enjoy it. Um, it's just pleasing to my ears. Um, it might be nostalgia. Of course, it's part of it. Um, but I just think it's kind of a perfect combination of heavy and danceable and synth heavy. And it's just a unique record. So I'm at a full length record. I think I'm in between you guys because I'm at about eight songs. I would dump Fool, 23, and Tortoise. Yeah. So that takes me to eight. So, which is about 30 minutes, I think, for this, for that running time. So I guess it's either a long EP or a very short record. 
So I think the next record is actually pretty short. It's only like 34 or 35 minutes. So maybe I'm at a worthy album. Maybe that's where I'm maybe. at. Maybe. Be decisive here. Are you or not? <laughs> Should have get off the pot. If eight songs qualifies, then yes, I'm at a worthy album. All right. Well, it's a stand. 70s album, right? 70s length album. I'm at a, a 70s electronica album. <laughs> I, I have just created the most advanced album of the 1970s. Between Jars of Clay and Slayer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, those are our opinions on the 1995 album Empty by God Lives Underwater. Matthew, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and and uh, picking this record and also, you know, supporting the podcast. We greatly yeah, man. Thank it. you, guys. Thanks for the entertainment and all that and have me on there. Um, you got anything you want to plug? Uh, yeah, actually, I play in a band right now called Genitor. It's G-E-N-I-T-O-R, because people always get that wrong. Um, and it's on Spotify. We got an EP called Fossil Dome. You can check that out. Uh, we're on Bandcamp and YouTube and iTunes and Amazon and all that stuff. So uh, check it out. It's kind of, a, um, I don't know, alternative rock, you know, kind of like Weezer, Toadies, Queens of the Stone Age kind of stuff. So I'd appreciate it if people would check it out and give it a listen. Cool. Yeah, All man. right, everybody, you heard where that, whether it's at, go go check it out. Uh, remind everybody, Patreon is the place that you go to support the podcast. Um, we have we'll have some interesting stuff coming up, so be on the lookout. We have, we're not ready to announce it just yet, but there'll be some fun things going to happen pretty soon, probably around thanksgiving-ish time and uh you can go to patreon.com forward slash dig me out to support the podcast and uh bonus content and polls and giveaways and that kind of stuff and of course if you like what you heard please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at itunes so for jm tim we're out and we'll be back next week with another episode of dig me out Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash digmeout and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. <laughs>